Hello, this is a podcast from SCC English, the English department of St. Columbus College, Dublin in Ireland. It's our blog at sccenglish.ie. Welcome to the SCC English podcast number three. This is Julian Gurdon from the English department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. You can learn more about us in our blog sccenglish.ie where you can listen to this podcast or on iTunes, search for SCC English. So this week in April 2009 is the first of a series of Macbeth revision podcasts. When you study a play for two years, certain things can become very fixed in your mind, and you can indeed become stale. So in the weeks leading up to the leaving certificate in early June, we're planning a weekly series of short podcasts which will give you a chance to think a little bit more about the play and perhaps challenge some ideas. Your examiners want a fresh, lively, personal response. So that's what these podcasts are aimed at, freshening up your ideas. You may well disagree, say surely not about something you hear on this site, and if so, that's good, because it means you're thinking about the play, still personally engaged with it. Plans for future topics will include the idea of kingship, the only scene not set in Scotland, of course Malcolm and Macduff in England, and Lady Macbeth. So this week I'm focusing on the most important moment in the play. Not in plot terms, since that's obviously Duncan's murder, but instead the crucial turning point before this, the moment when Macbeth's life could have gone in a very different direction. This is a moment which is important not because something happens which is crucial, but precisely because nothing happens. I can hardly imagine an answer on the play which doesn't at least refer to this speech and scene. It's the start of Act 1, Scene 7. You might like to pause the podcast and fish out the text, but in any case, I'm now going to read the speech first of all. Act 1, Scene 7. At the end of the soliloquy, Macbeth is interrupted by his wife arriving. If it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence, and catch, with his surcease, success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all, here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, would jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed. Then, as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity, like a naked newborn babe, striding the blast, or heaven's cherubin horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, but tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur, 
to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. Ah, oh, now, what news? The beginning of this soliloquy at first seems confusing, a tangle of words that almost seems a kind of tongue-twister. But in the end, it becomes one of the most memorable speeches in literature about moral clarity, about seeing and understanding clearly. And it's this clarity which in the end forms the basis of the true tragedy of this story. As we watch a man of great imaginative gifts and profound insight do precisely what he understands to be the worst thing he could do. So, some comments about things to notice in this speech before I go on to try and justify it as the key moment in the play. The important words are little ones, literally. First, the most important of all, the one which begins the first two sentences. Everything is governed by that conditional word, if. If it were done. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence. And we know that another little word is coming up, lethally, just around the corner, and it duly arrives in line seven. But, but in these cases we still have judgment here. This is an if-only speech. If only I could have what I want. How often do we all think that? But we know we can't. We shouldn't. We now hear a man so horrified by what he might do, by what he really wants to have, that putting it into words, even in his mind, is dangerous. When you speak the first sentence out loud, you have to pick yourself through it carefully to avoid tripping up. Why? It's Macbeth's mind doing the same, carefully avoiding the true subject by repeatedly using another little word, it. If it were done, when it is done, then it were well, it were done quickly. But this is nothing compared to the extraordinary second sentence, a mishmash of clauses and consonants, during which Macbeth tries to square the circle, to imagine the impossible, and he ends it with another significant little word, when he says that if only he could do this thing without any consequences, then he, or rather the distancing pronoun we, would jump the life to come. This idea of jumping or leaping or vaulting, or in the second last line of this speech, or leaping, consequences, is crucial. Macbeth knows you just can't do this. It's like jumping over your own shadow. But boy, does he want to do it. And his actions in the second half of the play, in particular the murders of Banquo and the Macduffs, are an increasingly doomed and futile series of attempts to jump over the inevitable. That but on line seven, but in these cases we still have judgment here, brings everything up short. The knowledge that we, again, always have judgment, in other words, rationality, conscience, moral awareness, and the further knowledge that there are consequences to every deed, whether we like it or not. Bloody instructions always return to plague the inventor. One of the key quotations in the play 
is the doctors in Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking scene. It pinpoints this idea perfectly. Unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Yes, they do, and Macbeth knows this all too well. And then he lays out the reasons for not killing Duncan. As kinsman, subject and host, there couldn't be a worse crime. By line 16, intellectual clarity takes a back seat to his appalled imagination, as the ten-line sentence beginning, besides this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meet. By the way, notice that he names him now, as he becomes drawn into the nightmarish vision as he takes off into a horrified enactment of the inevitable consequences of the murder. And then he comes to the key phrase of the speech, the deep damnation of his taking off. The result, tears drowning the wind. And so he comes to the conclusion, I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition. He's wrong, of course since another very human spur enters at just this point. In Soliloquy's last sentence, as a result of the thought process of the speech and the inescapable power of his moral imagination, clarity arrives. I have no spur, he says, using I openly and firmly, except vaulting ambition. Of course, the pointed entrance of Lady Macbeth at this moment highlights the other spur he has, his own wife, and Lady Macbeth will be the subject of our second Macbeth revision podcast next week. In his 1960s book, Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, the Polish director Jan Kot writes about the play, There is no tragedy without awareness. Macbeth is aware of the nightmare. The thought of murder that has to be committed, murder one cannot escape from, is even worse than murder itself. The act of killing changes the person who has performed it. From then on, he is a different man living in a different world. As Cott says, it is just this horrified awareness that Macbeth expresses in this speech, especially in the second part of it. Now, of course, 30 lines later, he's changed his mind, or at least I suggest he seems to have changed his mind. In this speech, Macbeth decides, seemingly very definitely, not to do something. And yet by the time we hear his weak question on line 59, if we should fail, Macbeth has given in. How? The common too quick answer to this puzzle is that Lady Macbeth persuades him by questioning his manhood. If so, he's a truly feeble character and scarcely worthy of a tragedy. A more convincing answer, I think, is that she's just pushing an open door. The rational clarity of this speech should be familiar to all of us. In life, all the time, we come across moments when we know we shouldn't do something, and when we know exactly why, and then we go ahead and do it. All we need is a little voice inside us to say, oh, go on. It's the voice inside us that says, if only... And Lady Macbeth just echoes this little voice, and he's lost forever. So why do I think this is the crucial moment of the play? Shakespeare is doing a very difficult thing here, constructing a tragedy about a bad man, 
a man who in real life we would run a mile from, and yet somehow a man who in the theatre fascinates and attracts us. And he does this primarily by the privileged access we have into his mind, a mind that is, at the start of the play, vibrant, alert, imaginative, intelligent. The great tragedy is that Macbeth wastes this and destroys his own life, a tragedy heightened by his awareness that he does risk this. He knows exactly what will happen if he kills Duncan, and then he kills him, and it happens. The tragedy follows from this awareness, awareness expressed eloquently in this soliloquy. The bookend of this speech, to me, is in Act 5, Scene 5, the Tomorrow and Tomorrow speech, which a future podcast will focus on. For the moment, let me just say that this is the speech when the full implications of just what he knew in Act 1, Scene 7, come home to roost. That life indeed has come to mean nothing, that, just as he predicted, bloody instructions will always return to plague the inventor, and that life has indeed come to mean nothing. He knew it all along.